Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 80. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. Fueled on caffeine today. Fueled on caffeine and pure determination as I am still recovering from a weekend in Blackpool <laughs> on top of a lovely chest infection, courtesy of you two. <laughs> we, we haven't been kissing, by the way. That's well, not, I don't know what you well, two guys are doing. <laughs> it was a bit of a lively weekend, though, wasn't it, boys? Yeah, yeah, it was wicked. Yeah, it was really good. So yeah. Obviously, we were at Play Expo in Blackpool, um, the huge event that last weekend. I mean, uh, we were actually there on stage on the Saturday. We got there nice and early. Bearing in mind, I always do this thing. I always think, right, I'm going to get all my work done night before, go to bed about nine o'clock, set my alarm for half five. That's it, I'll be fresh next day. Went to bed about half past three in the morning in the end. <laughs> yeah, I was working till really late as well, so I had about three hours sleep. But we rocked it, Dan. We yeah. had like 150 or 30 people in for the big Amiga talk, and the Wait, atmosphere was, that, was, was sorry, amazing. Was that 150 people or 30? I'm not sure. I didn't have time to count. But, yeah. No, it looked very busy. Yeah. yeah, we did three separate talks, and one of them actually is going to be broadcast on today's show. Now, we were chatting to former Ocean Software director Gary Bracey. Now, this guy is obviously widely regarded as a guy who turned around the fortunes of Ocean Software. We all know those massive movie licenses, Robocop, Batman, mm. that Ocean had back in the day. And uh, I've got to say a massive thank you to the guys at Retro on Limb who have filmed it and actually recorded the audio for us today. Now, little disclaimer, this was a live audience in front of a crowd. It's not our usual studio sound that you'll be used to on the Retro yeah, Hour podcast. Yeah. We had a little mess up with the audio <laughs> as usual. Whenever we do anything live, we've always had a little mess up with the audio. But luckily, Retro and Lim came and saved us. Now, bear in mind you've been an audio engineer for how long, Ravi? Um, about five, ten years. I've been a, I've been a, I've been a broadcaster working radio for like 15 years. Oh, I don't think we've ever successfully recorded a live event yet, No, we? no. I, th- I think the only one was John Romero, and then we could hear him banging on the tables anyways. <laughs> so, like, you'll have to excuse the quality He's not, you know, quite up to our usual standard, but when you really get used to it, I think it is more than listenable. And especially when you hear the stories of Ocean Software, because uh, there's some really good tales that were told there. We also had a little um, a world exclusive as well. We had David Pleasance, ex Commodore, Gary Bracey, and Mark Hale from System 3 all together on a little panel. And like the audience QA was amazing. Yeah, you don't usually get those three people together. And it was good because it was like two kind of rival companies with the computer system in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the debate was just really fun and everybody seemed to get on that was the thing you know you think oh system free there in ocean is there going to be a punch up but no it was fantastic <laughs> and i bought myself a sega 32x yeah you did uh i like to think that i had something to do with that and um, they were doing the panels and i was off gaming with other friends and uh Dan's been after a 32X what for about three, four years yeah. now? And I saw one, uh, and I was just like, oh my God, text Dan, message him, ring him, anything. <laughs> Went him and got him, and uh, you got an absolute steal on it. I'll use the word steal in the end. Because it was meant to be 95 quid, and it didn't come with the AV cables. So the guy said, you know, you were looking on eBay for me, and you found a cable for like 399 He goes, I'll tell you what, I'll knock 399 off then. 75 quid. Yeah. And I'm like, this guy obviously don't do maths a lot well. So. I was like, I don't, know where he, I don't know where he went to school, but brilliant. Did you get anything nice, Joe? Um, I'd, yeah, I did, actually. Um, I ended up buying a lot of PlayStation and PS2 kind of stuff. Some wouldn't consider it massively retro, whereas usually I kind of just kind of go for the 8-bit and 16-bit consoles. But um, You are Mr. 16-bit, remember? This is, this is true, and I didn't actually buy a single 8-bit or 16-bit uh, cartridge or anything from... From the expo, I ended up buying, I think I bought all, all the Animal Shoe games for PS2 because I've always just wanted to play them. Silent Hill 2 and 3 um, and a couple of other bits and bobs. But yeah, which was very odd for me, but enjoying them at the moment, which is you, good. You got recognised like, quite a few times when we're out and about and everyone's like, oh, you're Mr. 16-bit, Joe. Yeah, and I was just <laughs> there like, how do you know me? And it's like, oh, I've been on your Facebook. And I'm like, really? <laughs> it's Handsome Joe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and Ravi had some interesting purchases. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I just bought like soft toys <laughs> and plushies. So <laughs> I had a really cool lemming that I put on Instagram. I didn't know this, right? I bought this lemming and I thought, oh, this is cool. And I took it home and I squeezed it. And it went, oh no! That's brilliant. Yeah, it does all the voices. Yeah. That's brilliant. Well, funny enough, we didn't. You didn't actually get that lemming from the expo, did you? No, that was uh, this little gaming store, Eclipse, that we ended up walking yeah. down to. So yeah. it was interesting. So we were all really hungover, just to paint the picture. 
Um, about 11, 12 o'clock in the morning, all very, very hungover, other than Ravi, of course. Ravi's always, you know, spring chicken in the morning. And he's like, oh, I've seen this uh, game shop. It's about an 18-minute walk away from the town centre. Thinking, oh, okay, that's 18 minutes away. 40 minutes later, me being <laughs> yeah. very, very pessimistic, I was like, it's a Sunday, Ravi, it's not going to be open. I can't believe you've made us do this. And it was a really, really good little find. Yeah, the boy it? delivered. The boy delivered. Yeah, yeah it was a... Blooming good shop, so I recommend that because they. I think they also had a store um, at yeah. Play Expo, so yeah. you know they had half their stock there and half at the shop as well. What were they called again? Eclipse. 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 That was Blackpool. Eclipse. Yeah. Eclipse Gaming in Blackpool. If really you're in that area, definitely. Work. I mean, you put a link on our Facebook so people want to find their page. And even did an offer, didn't they? Where you get fiver off any game over a tenner. If yeah, any account. game over a tenner, yeah. fiver off, which I thought was really good because it was all really reasonably priced anyway. Mm-hmm. So then I didn't even know that he just said, "Oh, if you like the page, you get fiver off," and I thought, "Wow, that's fantastic!" Mm-hmm. Like. Yeah, Joe's borrowing everyone else's phone. Look, I've liked the page again. (laughs) See, it was a great weekend in Blackpool and we are going to bring you a talk with Gary Bracey from Ocean Software on the Retro Hour podcast in around 20 minutes from now. Now, before we get into that, Obviously, we do the show week in, week out. We're a multi-platform show. You know, we cover Sega, we cover Commodore, we cover Sinclair, Amstrad, Nintendo, anything, you know, that's retro, we cover on this show. Virtual Boy. We haven't done a Virtual Boy special yet, but, you know. There you go, it's been mentioned. Have you ever used That's what I want next time from a show. (laughs) Have you ever used a Virtual Boy? Uh, Yeah, I got a migraine after about a minute, I think. (laughs) (laughs) But we couldn't do the show week in, week out without your very generous support. Now, we want to say a massive thank you to our people who this week have found it in their hearts to make a donation into the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Now, we have this on our website, a little tip jar. If you enjoy this show, just want to put a couple of quid couple of dollars, couple of euros into the pot to help us pay for the cost of running it. You know, we really appreciate that. Obviously, completely optional. But this week, we want to say a huge thank you to Magnus Esbjörner. Adam Hind. Uh, Billy Rooney. And Christopher Folds, who all made donations to the Retro Hour podcast this week. You can do the same by heading to our website, theretrohour.com. Little PayPal on there. Fill in your email or donate via Bitcoin. Now, speaking of listeners getting in touch... We thought we'd try some of it last week, do you remember? Yeah, we did like an appeal, and it was kind of... It's because we got this one video of a guy listening to the Retro Hour next to a beautiful lake mm-hmm. after setting up a sauna. So we were like, we want to hear about Retro Hour listeners and where they listen to us, how they consume us, and we got some really nice letters through. You know what I've actually done to make this like proper old-style radio? I've actually print, <laughs> printed the letters out as well. Oh, physical paper, it's not digital. <laughs> it's it so much more proper. I, I should have I, done it on the uh, carbon me, it's really, paper. It's really weird because I work in a paperless office like where we're not meant to have paper, so for me it's what just is like... This? What is this? <laughs> you should have done a dot matrix. <laughs> that would have been good. <laughs> So uh, yeah, we have got an email address if you ever want to get in touch and you know maybe ask any questions, let us know where you listen to the Retro Hour podcast, say hello, anything like that. You can email show at theretrohour.com. The idea is we're going to read one or two out like you know, at the start of every show. We did get quite a few this week, actually. Now, I've picked out a few here. We've got to say a massive hello to uh, Amiga Bill, Bill Winters. Oh, from the Guru Meditation. Good friend hello. of ours. He says, uh, what up, boys? The Retro Hour podcast rules. Heard your request for photos or videos of where folks listen to you. And he sent us a picture of where he normally listens to the Retro Hour podcast on the banks of the Hudson River in Terrytown in New York. It looks amazing. This, this to me, looks like an advertising shot. And the most impressive thing about it is he's put it through an Amiga paint program yeah. <laughs> and it still looks really good quality. For me, it's just really depressing that he's just in such a better place than us. We're, you know, we're <laughs> in the UK and he's in New York. We're just like, oh, great. So to describe this picture, uh, Bill's there, you can see his issues. He's just kind of there, you know, the sun rising or setting, I imagine, unless he's there at like five in the morning, <laughs> going down over the mountains. He's holding the Retro Hour podcast up on his phone and it just looks so tranquil, doesn't it? And yeah. He's, and here we are in like dull, grey, wet Nottingham on a yeah. Wednesday evening. Well, virtually we're in um, America. <laughs> but it's awesome. I mean, you know, Bill, if you haven't checked him out before, he's at the Guru Meditation on YouTube. Amiga Bill on Twitch as well. He's actually going to be doing a little tutorial on how he made this on the Amiga, this picture. So That's amazing because yeah. Bill's stuff that, you know, he produces it is just the highest quality. It's fantastic. So, good to know you listen there, Bill. Looks amazing. Cheers. Uh, Dave slash Hologram, that's his handle, has been in touch. He goes, hey, guys, I love to listen to the Retro Hour podcast when I'm driving or better yet, hiking in the woods. I'm so happy I found your podcast. I grew up on the Commodore 64, um, but the cassette player wasn't available, so he typed in all his games from, from magazines and then lost them when he turned the computer off. Oh, But in the, late, in the later days, he ran a leap bulletin board called America's Most Wanted. Some dodgy wares on that one. So do you reckon, do you reckon he downloads it before he goes for a walk in the woods because he might 
lose, you know, streaming connection or something. Yeah. Loses 3G. <laughs> nice to hear from you, though, Dave. Thank you for getting in touch. And finally this week, uh, Lewis Clark, he goes, Hey, guys, Lewis here from SegaDriven.com. Want to drop you a little letter and say, I'm a big fan of the show. He listens on Overcast on iOS, mm, which you've yes. mentioned before, good podcast app. Recently, he found an Amiga 500 in his parents' loft. Now, our friend Alex actually did the same recently. Yeah, what's something going on with like Amigas in parents? Like, there's an Amiga fairy just planting them in people's like you know, not in your like, attic, but in your parents' attic. <laughs> and I, I did actually tell Alex this over the weekend that we did find uh, one disc with his Amiga because it yeah. wasn't his; it was his granddad's Amiga, wasn't it? No, no, no. It was his stepdad's stepdad's. Okay. Amiga. Far, far removed then. Yeah. Well, there was a disc with it, and it just said on the label, "One disc with this Amiga 500, stag." Ah. <laughs> yeah. Say no more. We'll Go- leave it Go- there. Google it if you don't know what we're talking about. Uh, Lewis, however, he wants to use this Amiga for completely other purposes, I imagine. He said, I found this Amiga 500. He wants to expand it to one megabyte of memory so he can play games. Is there any way he can do that easily or should he emulate? Uh, for the 500. Mm, to get trapdoor thing? Yeah, you can get a little trapdoor expansion, the original ones. Yeah. Go to Amiga Kit, they've probably got one, or just check eBay, you want 512k RAM expansion. And they've got those little sideboards as well that you can get that even take you up to 8 megabytes. Yeah. I was just like, ooh, 8 megs of power, good, good one. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when 1 meg was like, wow! <laughs> so thank you so much for all your emails, guys, really appreciate it. And if you want to get in touch this week for a mention on next week's show, show at theretrohour.com. Now let's get into the news and we'll start with something a little bit sad. Yeah, um, retrocomputingnews.com, who have followed us for quite a while and has been run by the really nice Stuart Williams. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm afraid he's going to have to finish it because of stuff coming up in personal life okay. and commitments. But uh, cheers for all your work. And if you want to check it out, he's going to leave all the articles up and leave all the Facebook page up and everything so people can use it as a resource. So that's retrocomputingnews.com. That's really good when they do that, though, because there's nothing worse than a website just finishing and then it goes, and then you remember, I want to read that article again, especially something that's been going for a long time. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, some people, when they leave stuff, they delete everything, and it's just like, don't do that, yeah. you know, because people can use it many years in the future. Yeah, and hopefully, you know, maybe at some point you might come back and continue it. So, yeah, who uh, knows? And, uh, he, you know, if, if you feel like you might be able to help Stuart in a system or something, mm-hmm. maybe check him out and give him a contact. Yeah, best of luck, Stuart. Now, obviously, this one's been everywhere over the last week. I'm sure you've seen it. The Atari box has been unveiled. What is it? <laughs> no, it's I know what it is. with Atari. I know what it is. I know about it. Um, friend, uh, a friend of mine at work and at the gym, you know, he keeps on going on about it. But I, I don't know whether it's like a clone console, like the SNES and NES Mini, or like, you know, all these like Mega Drive Minis, etc. Or is it actually a brand new platform to play games on? Which I doubt. Can you tell me? Well, no one actually knows. Okay. They haven't unveiled officially at this point when we're recording the show. Um, all they did is, I mean, we talked about it, was it last week or the week before? They mm-hmm. released a video just kind yeah. of showing it up close. And it actually looks, now they've put out some proper images that show the actual console. It looks a lot slicker than I thought it did in that video. Because yeah. everyone was like, oh, it's wood grain, it's old-fashioned. But actually, it's actually quite, quite sleek plastic by the looks of it. And you've got the Atari logo that kind of glows through. It's a really nice design. It's kind of got yeah. the, the slopes on it. But um, I've heard... It, it really reminds me of, like, Space Odyssey or something. You know, like, mm. what they think the future looked like in the 70s. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's got the wood grain, you know, yeah. as well. But I heard um, that it was, also, it was for new games, but mm. also the old classics. So remakes as well. So it will kind of cover that, that area. And I, I suspect it will be some kind of Android device inside see then i mean you're looking at the specs here and this kind of leads to you know you've probably been right there um there's a black and red version and a wood version of it and they show the ports on the back as well you've got hdmi four usb ports uh, ethernet on the back what looks like a headphone jack but also an sd card slot as well okay i think if it was like you know you don't normally get sd card apart from the wii u yeah <laughs> or, or the switch <laughs> you don't normally get those in like you know mainstream consoles only yeah. really your android kind of boxes yeah kind of yeah things. yeah so i mean this could be i mean some people are suggesting maybe it's gonna be like a streaming box like a steam box kind of thing mm. that'd be interesting if it's android i mean it's essentially going to be like a an ouya yeah that was, was my main concern i was like are they going to put all this kind of like money and resource into it and effort into it just for it to kind of flop? Mm. But I think with it having the Atari name to it and it being by Atari, I think we're going to really see 
quite a backing to it. People are actually going to be interested in it, you know, especially, you know, the older gamers and stuff like that are really going to be like, oh, wow, like, that really is a flashback kind of thing. So... Hopefully I think, I think it'll catch the mainstream, you know. Yeah. Like, the way that it's spreading already, the amount Well, of this is, like I say, like, you know, I've got a mate at work who's mentioning it, and it's like, he's never been one to, like, mention the Atari before. He's never been one to mention, like, old games, retro games or anything. You know, as far as he's ever gone, really gone back, his PS2. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not something he has now. He doesn't even have a PlayStation 3 or, you know, he's just got his PC and his PS4. Uh, but he's even going on about it. He's like, wow, have you seen this? This could be like a new mainstream console kind of thing. And I'm like, wow, for him to know about it, mm. it's actually got quite a bit of oomph behind it. The most important thing, though, is obviously software, isn't it? Because, I mean, I remember that Ouya got a hell of a lot of hype. And at one point, that was the biggest, you know, funded Kickstarter in history, the Ouya. Mm. Yeah. And then, obviously, it came out and everyone bought one, you know, including me. <laughs> you sat there and you're like, I'm just playing phone games on my telly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, you know, yeah. there needs to be decent software there. I mean, the NVIDIA Shield... Yeah. It's a bit more kind of in that range. I mean, it depends who's going to develop for it. And they have been advertising for software developers for this platform. Oh, have they? Um, but that might just be for the user interface. You don't really know. So, Well, I think a big clue in it is that the fact that it has an Ethernet port in there. Mm. Because, you know, it's not going to be stuck with classic games. Why would they put bother putting an Ethernet yeah. port in there? You know, it's going to have some kind of online capability or maybe an app store. Or something like that. Well, if it's got Ethernet, you'd imagine, you know, because I remember the Ouya didn't have Ethernet, from what I remember. I think it was just Wi-Fi. I may be wrong there, actually, but you'd imagine on Ethernet, they're looking at maybe games that are going to require quite good latency, mm-hmm. so maybe more powerful games. Um, but, you know, it's interesting seeing the Atari name coming back. And I said to Ravi, you know, we were talking on Facebook about it last week. We're like, oh, it's probably just going to be an Android box. And I'm like, but I want one. He's like, yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, that's it. This is the thing, like, so when the SNES Mini came out, was announced, I was like, what a rip-off. I've got most of these games. Add to cart. Yeah. <laughs> In disgust. Yeah. Well, keep an eye on the Atari box. Interesting to see the Atari brand back there. Something else that caught our interest this week, um, Super Mario Maker 64. Yeah, this is a, a really nice-looking kind mm. of um, take on Mario Maker, but for the N64, and it's been done. I think it's in Project 64, which is an emulator. It's very much like if you ever played Tony Hawk's and they had the level editors. <laughs> it's kind of like that. Yeah, no, that's that's what kind of reminded me of as well. Yeah, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater with the level editors. Um, for me, I mean... I would love to see something like this on the Switch. Like, I think it's got some real potential. Um, whether Nintendo do it, doubtful. You know, when do they do what we actually demand? Um, but I think it looks really good, but it would be really nice to see it on the Switch in, like, kind of, like, really smoothed, o- smoothed over graphics. Um, you know, just kind of looking a lot nicer in that <laughs> Dan, HD. No, no. <laughs> Dan's just really distracting us right now. <laughs> a little dance in my chair to the very amusing. We should do the whole show over this. <laughs> we should. Just do it all the time. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, you know, because I've got Mario Maker on the on the Wii U and it is loads yeah, of fun but obviously is. being able to do it with a game that you know inside out and get new levels and all that well that's yeah. 2D as well this mm, is a three dimensional this is more yeah, advanced yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my point is is Mario Maker um, obviously kind of focuses on your, your Nintendo and your SNES um, and they look really nice the graphics look really nice and vamped up whereas this kind of demo of Mario Maker 64 doesn't so it would be really nice to see Nintendo mm. actually do it themselves and really see those really polished, nice, clean graphics. Totally, and maybe they could have other 3D titles in there because you know in Mario Maker you can have the old NES games and mix them in with the new yeah. ones, and you know, yeah, that's that would yeah. be cool. I'm sure that Mario Maker's got to be a, a title that they put on the Switch because yeah, the Switch has got a really good touchscreen actually. Yeah, it's like the Wii U. It, it was not a multi-touch. You know, it was on a capacitive one, I believe. So you need the stylus for it. Which for that game, actually using a stylus was probably quite good. Mm. But you know, the the Switch has got more like you know an iPhone kind of screen. Yeah, so you yeah. can do it with your finger quite accurately. So imagine, you know, if they want to get that game to a bigger platform, and it was one of the most highly praised Wii U well, games. Well, yeah, and it's been quite. It was successful on the 3DS as well. So mm. I would imagine it'd be quite successful on the Switch. Yeah. But then also with that argument, there's only so many games you know you can port. <laughs> I, I, always, I reckon they'll put all of them all, yeah. the, all the big like Wii U games probably <laughs> I always forget um, to actually press the buttons on my Wii U I look at the controller and I'm like oh and I forget that it's touchscreen yeah yeah <laughs> you know because you're used <laughs> yeah, to the joysticks yeah yeah stuff. absolutely yeah it's not the nicest touchscreen to use no. on the Wii U is it but uh, yeah, that was a really cool demo at the moment it only runs on the emulator the same but they're trying to get it working on an EverDrive you know so you can play it on actual hardware which uh, would be very very cool well so, uh, more Mario news <laughs> as well it's crazy this one yeah we've got uh, Batman Group who are 
a massive kind of hacking group that have been doing some great stuff for the Amstrad CPT. Are they the guys that ported Pinball Dreams to the Amstrad? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and they also did uh, some great Amiga demos back in the days. They're really talented coders. And they've actually created really smooth scrolling on the CPC for a Mario clone that they've made. Now, they put this video on Twitter, and, uh, you know, I'll put this in the show notes at theretrohour.com. Looking at that, I mean, it actually looks smoother than a NES. Yeah, they, they nah. found it. <laughs> you know what I think? Nah. <laughs> Maybe, I don't it? know. Let me play it. Oh, you haven't watched it yet. Just disagreeing. <laughs> no, I played it earlier on. I'm playing it again. It's you like, gotta, you gotta uh, it it's on the CRT. Oh, yeah, I, was, I don't know. Maybe a few drop frames. But, I think that's really smooth. They're, they're basically it, it, saying they've found a new kind of routine on how to do it. And in, instead of using byte precision, they're using byte precision instead of pixel precision for okay. scrolling. And that's seeming to speed it up. So they might be able to implement this in new releases that are coming out for the Amstrad, or they might be able to put it in older games and speed them up a bit. I mean, it's all, you know, well and good, but, you know, the NES has been, you know, scrolling for 34 years. The Amstrad's only been doing it a week. Give it a chance. (laughs) But but this really interests me in the Amstrad because, you know, it's like 50 FPS as well. And that machine, I think it was powerful, but people are only starting to discover the kind of things you can do with it. Well, you know, the Amstrad, it really, it got loads of Spectrum ports. Yeah. Because people were late, you know, developers were lazy. Mm. So really back in the day, people thought it was just as powerful as a Spectrum and then you see stuff like this and it's like, it was really un- underutilised. Really, yeah, they just so. thought it was Alan Sugar's like, you know, bodged together thing. But it seems to be really good. <laughs> now, speaking of 8-bit platforms, final story this week. You know what? I think the Commodore 64 is becoming the new Spectrum. Mm. You know what I mean by that? No, <laughs> all no, the real, no. Hmm, <laughs> yes, I agree. I have no what's, idea what you're on about. about that? Yeah. Now, do you remember a couple of years ago, you would see, like, remakes of the Spectrum absolutely everywhere? Yeah, absolutely. Like, every expo you'd go to a couple of years ago, there'd be one dealer, one seller, just selling all these different, like, Spectrum bits, like, you know, and it just kind of really, re, like, a proper resurgence about three, four years ago. And even the ZX Spectrum Next, you know, that's kind of just, the Kickstarter's mm-hmm. finished, that's and just about the yeah. Vegas and all of this kind of stuff, you know. Well, the Commodore 64 now looks like it's getting a few remakes as well. Now, obviously, mm-hmm. there's a one that Jerry did, Jerry Ellsworth. Yeah, the Commodore 1, which was years ago, and mm-hmm. it was kind of a, she always said that she wanted to have her Commodore 64 doing a lot more things, and, you know, be a lot more impressive so she kind of made a new one herself mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> from scratch yeah and also we had uh, you know Jens from Individual Computers he's making the uh, Commodore 64 Reloaded yeah, and at he's the got moment. the Commodore name yeah. as well as, so yeah. that will be all officially branded now this one isn't an official Commodore product but we have yet another Commodore 64 remake this one is called the C64 Ultimate yeah this this looks quite cool um, I hear you've been talking with them Dan yeah, well, um, Martin Wheeland, who, you know, listens to our show, we talk to him quite a lot. Mm. Um, he actually knows Gideon, who's the guy behind this, and hopefully we're going to have Gideon on the show in the next couple of weeks Thanks. to talk about this. But essentially, he's made a new Commodore 64 motherboard that actually does fit in the original case. Yeah. Um, however, it's like, you know, you look at the size of it compared to the original C64 motherboard, it's like, it's tiny, isn't it? It's a little thin strip, essentially. And that's, and that's it's, a, it's a lot, lot smaller, it's just like... As if it's just going to fit nicely at the back of it. Yeah. Like, and then it's just got that little strip down on the right side. You'd imagine it's going to be a lot more, you know, cooler than the old one, yeah. man, as well. So, but apparently it's meant to be, because it's got all the same ports and that, work with a lot of the original peripherals. Everything should work with it. You know, you can plug in, like, your old disk drives and all that, and apparently they'll work just fine. So, essentially, it's there to, uh, you know, replace, like, broken boards or if you want to build, like, you know, a machine that's going to last you another 30 years. Well, from looking at the picture of the prototype here, you've actually got some really cool stuff. You've got, like, HDMI out. Yeah. You've got the real-time clock is a battery, so it's not going to leak everywhere. Mm -hmm. You've also got an SD card going in there, and you've got GPIO ports, so you may be able to control extra stuff internally from it and use the old Commodore kind of Wi-Fi kits and all the new add-ons at the back that are coming through. Well, it essentially replaces a lot of, like, the expansion port things, like, you know, the uh, the SD card adapters and that kind of, the SD, you know, two IECs and those kind of things. Mm. Essentially, they're all on board with this. So. Yeah, yeah. And he's hoping it's going to be out before the end of this year. So, uh, again, and I heard a little rumour over the weekend that there may be another Commodore 64 project in the works by uh, some rather high-profile people that I'm not allowed to talk about just yet. Oh. Oh, I was literally being like, I was like, who? who? <laughs> I, think, I think I know anyway. Could just be a rumour. Could yeah. just be a rumour. But yeah, by the sounds of it, you know, what happened to the Specky a couple of years ago, you're about to get a lot of C64s remade over the next year or so. Oh, exciting. 
Maybe I should get a C64 now. <laughs> yeah, you've been, you've been saying that for a while, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. No excuse now. I, I need to dip my toe into the water. <laughs> so thank you so much for checking out episode number 80 of the Retro Hour podcast. Can't believe we made the big 8 already. It's crazy. It's kind of a cake or something to celebrate. Yeah, yeah. Celebrate well. 100. <laughs> now, the show will be out again next Friday, of course, available from all of your favourite podcast clients. And if you do want to get in touch and let us know how you listen or just say hello, maybe you've got something you want to promote, anything like that, drop us an email, show at theretrohour.com. Now, if you were a Commodore 64 fan, you are going to love this week's show. We're catching up with Gary Bracey, the former Ocean Software director who uh, used to, you know, get all those licensed games, stuff like Robocop and Batman, and really was a guy who changed a fortune for Ocean Software and made them into the massive company that they were. Recorded live at Play Expo in Blackpool last weekend. Thanks to our very good friends at Retro and Lim. Um, we'll put a link to them in our show notes this week as well. They've got a really good website. Have you checked that out? Yeah, yeah, it's some really good and their YouTube channel is nice so you can also see a video version of this on there yeah well I'll get it on my YouTube channel this weekend thanks to them as well so so thank you very much for checking out the show guys we'll see you next week see you next week Listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time to welcome our very special guest. Recorded live at Play Expo in Blackpool by our very good friends at Retro Unlim. You can check them out at retrounlim.com. I'll put that in this week's show notes on our website. The amazing Gary Bracey from Ocean Software, the man who was responsible for some of the biggest licensed video games in history, joined me and Ravi in front of a live audience. And here it is. Enjoy. Now, this is a question we always like to start with to give you a little bit of background. But what was your first ever computer experience then? When did it all begin? Um, well, it was in the days before computer porn, so my experience was uh, a little bit disappointing. Okay, <laughs> um, I guess the first real. I had an Acorn Atom um, with a floating point on, uh, so I was very lucky. Um, but my first real experience was uh, the Spectrum, I guess. Uh, and I got the. Um, the box where you can get the, what was it, teletext type thing, Prestel, was yes. it? Um, so that was online as well. Um, and that sort of got me into it, and I thought, yeah, this is what I want to do. Uh, did you always kind of want to work with technology, or did you have other ambitions? Um, I, had, I had ambitions. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I worked in retail, I worked at Littlewoods chain stores, and uh, management, and uh, getting getting into computer games sort of changed my life and I thought, well, this could be an interesting uh, direction uh, career-wise. So uh, I bought a Spectrum uh, the day the Spectrum came out and I rented some shelves in a local video library and bought a few games uh, from a distributor and thought, I'll start a retail operation. And within a year, it did pretty well. Within a year, I made enough money to open up my own short store in... Uh, place called Allerton Road in Liverpool, which was the first computer shop in Liverpool. And um, that sort of got me on my way. The shop was called Blue Chip, very imaginative. Um, and, and it was great. And, and I was dealing with people who were really into games. It was in the very, very early days. Um, and then about two years into it, I wasn't really cut out to be a shopkeeper. Um, and John Woods, who was a mate, and he relatively recently started uh, a company called Spectrum Games, which was turned into Ocean Games, I think it was then, Ocean Games. And he asked me if I um, had any experience with games, and I said, yes, I sell them. I think I know what people like. And he asked me if I wanted to help him oversee uh, the game production of the company, which was doing quite well at the time. They, 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 they'd done a few, uh, a few successful games. Um, so I had no grasp of programming, uh, I can't draw, um, can't, uh, I'm not an artist, but I, I, I think I had a feel of what people liked to play because I sold to them every day. Um, and that's what really kicked it off, so I joined Ocean and uh, I think I found a niche. That was in 1985 when you joined Ocean? Uh, yeah, around about. And that must have been quite an interesting time because, you know, obviously before that we had the fall of Imagine Software as well. That obviously was like a huge story in the industry then. I mean, did that kind of affect Ocean? Obviously, a lot of their games kind of came out of that purchase, didn't it? Yeah, I, well, they bought the brand. I mean, I knew all the Imagine boys. I used to, um, I mean, we socialised a lot because the, the hub of the UK games industry at the time was really Liverpool and Manchester. And in Liverpool, you had Bug Bye, you had Imagine, uh, Software Projects, um, and Odin, which became 
thought, which became Odin, uh, and quite a few of them. So um, it was quite a big, big industry in uh, in the northwest there. Um, so I knew quite a few people there. Um, and when Imagine went, uh, which was sad, uh, Ocean acquired the brand and decided to publish their coin-op games, their coin-op conversions uh, under the Imagine label. Well, weren't you um, always been a kind of movie fan? Is that big star? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, in fact, I always thought if if I hadn't have done this. If all opportunities had been open, I would have loved to have gone to film directing. That was my dream. Um, but instead, I sort of, I guess I was directing games, which is close enough, I guess. Um, but I love movies. And uh, when Ocean start, when I started getting into the Ocean licensing side, um, after the, the early successes of the few games, uh, particularly Top Gun, um, the movie companies started to realise that this video game hoo-ha uh, could actually be quite lucrative because they started seeing royalty checks which they'd never seen before. They'd licensed the game for X thousand dollars and wouldn't expect anything more from it. But all of a sudden, some of these games started to sell quite a few uh, and they started to get royalty checks in and they started to take it really seriously. So, um, and, and at the time, I guess Ocean were the largest active company in, in movie licenses. So, <coughs> they started sending us scripts. Um, and I think I was the only one who wanted to read the script. I would devour these things. I read all the scripts. And I actually still kept a few. They're all at home. Um, and so I was looking at the scripts and sort of saying, yeah, there's potential there. No, that's not suitable. They actually sent us, I swear to God, they sent us Rain Man. Count how many matches on the floor. Uh, so that's what sort of sparked that off, and of course uh, I got this sort of B-movie script um, which I read and I thought it was, it was pretty good and uh, I, said, uh, I said to John David that uh, we ought to take this one and that was Robocop and uh, that was uh, a big one because no one, no one really expected that to do as well as it did. Um, it was a B-movie after all, or perceived to be a B-movie and it just captured the culture at the time. And of course, it was perfect fodder for a video game. It was, the genre was perfect, uh, the action element, and uh, Paul Van Hoven, Van is that his name? He was a pretty good established director. So um, it was a bit of a punt, but um, uh, it really, really changed the fortunes of Ocean in that it became, uh, it gave uh, movie licensed games a lot more credibility. Whereas before, they were a little bit more cookie cutter. Well, when you first started at Ocean, I mean, was it kind of one of your priorities to exercise a bit more quality control? Um, yeah, it, there was no specific agenda. What had happened was, when I was brought in, uh, Ocean had uh, recently got the rights to Knight Rider and Street Hawk, and they were being developed by some freelance companies. One of them was in Brighton, I recall. Um, and I went to visit them, and they'd just been taking the money and hadn't been, really been doing anything with the, uh, with the game. And we had a deadline, and the marketing was all set to launch the game in three months' time or whatever it was. And uh, there was no one overseeing it. And uh, so I felt that the only way really to address this was to have a little bit more control, so bring more people in-house. Because when I joined, I think there were about... 10, maybe 12 people uh, in-house at Ocean. So the first thing I wanted to do was expand that into a proper studio. And bear in mind, this was not done in those days. These days, you've got studios of hundreds and hundreds of people. But in those days, it didn't exist. It was the start of the industry, and no one knew what to do. So um, we started a recruitment campaign, and um, we started getting some amazing talent in some of whom are here today, um, and bringing the, the real AAA titles in-house, which allowed us, I use the control in the nicest sense of the word, but control in that uh, we knew where it was at the time, we knew whether it was slipping behind or going to be on, on, on time. Uh, if it wasn't looking good, we could tweak a few graphics, and um, uh, it worked. What was the uh, kind of culture like back then? Was it... Uh laid back place or kind of suits and... It was insane. <laughs> um, I mean, I was about, 
I was about 30, 29, 30. Most of the developers were in their teens, in their late teens. Um, and as I say, all incredibly talented uh, and enthusiastic and passionate. Um, and so, but no, most of them had come straight from school or college or whatever and hadn't had a real job before. Um, so you had the suits upstairs who were doing the sales and the marketing, and then you had the t-shirts downstairs in the dungeons, as we called them, um, and, and they were developing the games. And I was sort of in the middle. I, I, I was the interface between the two. Um, so uh, the suits would scream at me if something was late or something wasn't quite right or wasn't getting a good review. And uh, the T-shirts would scream at me because I was screaming at them saying it's late and hasn't got a good review. So uh, I was completely unpopular. Um, but anyway, no, it was a great job. And um, uh, it was the culture... How can I describe it? It was, it was just raw. It was, it was a pioneering time where the video games industry was just start, starting to exist. There was no precedent. You couldn't, you couldn't look at another company and say, that's what we want to be like. Um, uh, there were no examples to follow. Uh, we made it up as we went along, I guess. And uh, some of it we did, we did well. Some of it we didn't do so well. But uh, I think we did more well than we did badly. Uh, and it, it was wonderful. The atmosphere was great because everyone loved what they were doing. Um, and no one really considered it to be something that was going to be become part of the global culture. In those days, it was a fad. It was going to last five years and then people would move on from video games to something else. And no one believed that in, in 30 years' time we'd be coming to an event like this and seeing all that old stuff and, and, and so much affection being shown for it. Um, I, I think that's taken us all by surprise. And if anyone says any different, uh, I, I'd, uh, I'd disagree. But um, no, we just didn't know. We were just doing something that we loved. And, and that showed, and it showed in the, in, in the whole culture. I mean, speaking about the cultural ocean, I mean, did you kind of learn any lessons from Imagine Software? Because I know a lot of us probably saw that documentary that went out on TV and it was lots of, you know, extravagance, you could say, and yeah. like 18 year olds driving like new Ferraris and that kind of thing. I mean, did you guys live it up quite a lot or did you look at them and think actually we should grow it in a bit? Um, no, there was never that, that lack of control. I think, I think Ocean was, was basically run by uh, John Woods and David Ward. Um, and they were businessmen. They, and they actually just saw Ocean as a business. They weren't into games. I don't think they ever played a game in their lives. Um, they saw it as a business opportunity. And so, commercially, they ran it as a company. Um, downstairs in the dungeons was a little bit different, a little less disciplined. But upstairs, as I say, you had the suits, you had professional salespeople, you had marketing teams, artwork, art teams, um, interfacing with the likes of Bob Wakeman, who's here today, um, to do the artwork, and, 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 and created this great um, business. Uh, and I guess they actually created a template for the way business was run uh, in the video games area. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't out of control, although uh, I think David would have liked a Ferrari. Well, he had one, actually. But, uh, um, uh, no, it was, it was... I think everyone was doing pretty well. Um, everyone was, was pretty well paid because we wanted to keep the talent. Uh, so we needed to incentivize everyone. So everyone had a pretty good, a pretty good life. Um, what was your relationship with Commodore like, and how did you work with them? Um, it was very platonic. <laughs> um, the, the, the relationship with Commodore, um, I mean, David Pleasance is, is here today, and I haven't seen him literally since those days. But it's going to be quite a reunion. Um, we had a good relationship with, with Commodore. I was probably less involved because that was on the sales side. So obviously, um, we were developing and creating and publishing some very, very popular games on a global scale. Uh, and Commodore were releasing new, new, new uh, platforms, new hardware. Uh, so they wanted some way to push that hardware. And obviously a great way of doing that was bundling the machines with, um, with high profile games. And of course we did the Batman, uh, the Batman bundle for the Amiga, which was a phenomenal success. Um, and part of that, I would like to think, was attributable to the game being uh, being pretty good. 
Let's talk about licensing games, because um, I imagine it's quite an interesting process. Did you have much involvement with the movie studios? Did you kind of get scripts and ever visit the sets? And All the time. I spent um, probably two weeks out of every six in, uh, in Hollywood, hey. Um, had to buy sunglasses. Now. Um, and and that, was, that was a an amazing experience. I was on the sets an awful lot and I made friends with, I'll never forget, this sounds awful now, but um, uh, one of the movie stars of the day was back then, Alec Baldwin, who was married to Kim Basinger and they were like the Brad and Angelina of the day. And um, he was doing uh, The Shadow, uh, being directed by Russell Mulcahy, who did Highlander. And uh, we got the license for that. And I had quite a few meetings with them and uh, I, I got quite friendly with Alec Baldwin of all people. And I remember inviting him to my house for dinner. I said, oh, you and Kim come around for dinner. And he, oh yeah, great. When we're in London next, we'll come over. Uh, he never did. We've <laughs> <laughs> um, still got a play tap and a play set. Um, um, but uh, yeah, it was, it was great. We'd go to the, uh, the premieres, uh, the premiere parties of the, the movies. I mean, it really was. It was, it was a wonderful experience and probably the, the best experience of all. Um, I'm name dropping because you asked the question, but uh, it's a nice little anecdote. It's um, a meeting with Steven Spielberg on uh, Jurassic Park, uh, and he wanted a creative meeting. So I went into his office in um, Amblin Studios, which was on the Universal lot, and uh, we had a great, and he was a lovely guy. He was like a kid, he was like a big kid, full of enthusiasm. Can we do this and can we do that? Um, but the thing that re I remember most about his office was. Um, he had this, this cartoon, and the year that E.T. came out, Gandhi came out that same year, and he had this wonderful cartoon on the wall where there's a picture of Gandhi with a wheelbarrow full of Oscars, and next to him is a picture of E.T. with a wheelbarrow full of dollar bills. That's the thing I remember most about my meeting with Steve Spielberg. Um, so, no, it was, it, the, the movie licensing side was great. The scripts were kept coming in and uh, we'd visit the studios, we'd speak with the directors, and sometimes they'd have ideas of what they wanted the game to be. Which we never, we never delivered, and um, did our own thing. Um, of course, the, the problem was, you know, we got these things, and the movie was coming out in twelve months, and or even six months in some cases. So we had to design and develop and uh, uh, get the game out in time for the movie release, which which was quite challenging, even more challenging these days. Um, but as I say, we had I, I can't stress this enough. We had exceptional talent in our studio and, and I've been asked about this a number of times and people have asked me about particular people and I hate mentioning names because I don't want to miss anyone out but we were, oh, I was blessed with some incredible people um, and, and they were great and they delivered. When you got a movie license would there be a lot of competition from the internal staff to actually get a job working on that? Yeah, I think so. It, it, it wasn't quite that easy because obviously um, everyone was working on a, a project and then when they finished, they'd look at the next one. So it was a question of timing, really. It, it's all very well someone saying, I want to work on Jurassic Park. But if they're in the middle of the current project, then they wouldn't be able to, but maybe they'd be brought in afterwards to help uh, to help the scheduling a little bit. Um, but yeah, it, was, it wasn't entirely a democracy in that way, but obviously... Um, from my perspective, if someone was genuinely interested in the property, then I think that that would probably turn out to be a better game because they were passionate about it. Were there ever any licenses you were offered that you turned down that went on to be like massive movies? Mark Rain from Epic Games, um, he runs Epic Games. He keeps reminding me, and I, I swear to God I don't remember this, but he keeps reminding me that I turned down Wolfenstein. Uh, <laughs> um, and he, he gloats about that all the time. I genuinely don't remember it. Um, in terms of movies, no, there were some we lost which we wanted, like The Simpsons and The Turtles. Um, the one movie license that sticks out in my mind that we shouldn't have got was Hudson Hawk, um, <laughs> which was an absolute turkey. But if I tell you, that was the best script I'd ever read. And you had a great director, uh, Shane Black was the writer, uh, I forgot who the director was, but, uh, you know, significant director. Bruce Willis was Flavor of the Month. Um, 
wonderful, wonderful script. It was funny, it was action-packed, it was great, and it was ideal for a video game. I thought, this, this could be huge. Um, what had happened, apparently at the time, was Mr. Willis was such an ego that uh, he'd come on set and he'd basically rewritten the script for that day. And so the script that we bought was very, very different to the script that ended up on screen, um, which is such a shame because it would have made a great movie, the original. So not a regret, but maybe a mistake. Um, there were such big kind of licensed games. Did you ever have any issues with submitting to them, them to the game company and them saying, oh, no? Yeah, um, there was... Batman's ears were one pixel too long. I remember in um, uh, John Rickman's Batman game, um, you it was an isometric 3D 3D game, and you popped along and, and you had to get your life recharged by taking pills. Batman does not take drugs, so we had to change that whole uh, that whole scenario. Um, we we were rushing to get the Simpsons. Uh, Acclaim got the license for the Simpsons. Uh, but we got the Spectrum, maybe C64 license, I think, uh, for Europe. Um, so we had to do certainly the Spectrum version, maybe the 64 as well. And uh, we submitted the game, and, and we were doing it by the skin of our teeth. It had to be out for Christmas. In fact, I think it may have been part of a Commodore bundle at the time. So it really was a very, very strict deadline. And we got the thing back saying, everything is approved except Bart's Blink is off-model. Uh, firstly, I didn't know what off-model meant, but it just meant it wasn't approved. Um, because the Simpsons, apparently, learned this because of it, um, when, they bl when you blink, um, your top eyelid goes down to the bottom, like most human beings. The Simpsons blink differently. They have a bottom and a top eyelid that meet in the middle. And our blinks were, um, were off-model because we did it as a human blink. It's probably that man over there, Mark Jones, he probably did blame him. <laughs> Um, so, so um, that was that was a silly approval, but uh, no, it was it was mostly uh, likenesses, likenesses that gave us problems with approvals. But obviously, you mentioned Batman, and I mean, you know, in 1989, that got a massive reinvention with the Tim Burton movie. Before that, I mean, it was kind of remembered as a bit of a knacker in the 1960s show. Obviously, in that process of licensing the game, did you have any idea just how popular that was going to go on to be? Uh, I don't think so. I, I think I would put it down to the. I mean. The whole point of, of Ocean, uh, the philosophy of getting licenses, uh, was not necessarily that we, have to, we had to make a, a game based on that property. It was a marketing thing. Um, what we used to call the granny purchase, because granny would go out at Christmas and want to buy her grandson uh, a, a computer game. So she'd go to the shop and she'd see a vast array of cassettes or discs on the shelf and not have the faintest idea what to get him. But then she'd see Rambo and Top Gun and Batman and she'd recognise those so she'd buy them. So it was, it was sounds very cynical, but um, it, was, it was purely a marketing exercise. So when we got Batman, it was a recognisable brand. Um, but also, uh, I, I mean, I believe we all thought it would do incredibly well because the game was fantastic. Uh, did you ever kind of feel under pressure having to, you know, put big financial commitments into these games? And and maybe have to change things. Um, I didn't buy any financial. No. <laughs> uh, yes, there was there was significant pressure. I mean, when we got to uh, Jurassic Park, I think that was the first one million dollar license, and this was back in the days when a million dollars was a lot of money. Um, uh, it was it was the first million dollar license, and back in the late eighties, maybe nineteen ninety, um, that was a punt because there was never any guarantee that a movie was going to be successful. You, you, you had the credentials, you may have had Steven Spielberg directing what was the biggest book property of, of, of the decade, but there was no guarantee it was, going to be, uh, it was going to be a success. So, you know, we ponied up a million dollars and probably had to pay quite a large royalty as well, I don't remember. So there was a lot of pressure. And I remember um, wanting to do something groundbreaking for it. And the idea was to do a Doom type game in 3D. Uh, uh, but we, we just didn't have the time because, again, you know, we had a year or six months to do this game. Uh, and, and so you couldn't do anything too technologically advanced because it would take too long. Um, so we had to make compromises, sadly. You know, back in that kind of like 8-bit, 16-bit era, a lot of the games were platformers. 
Was it ever kind of a challenge to get the spirit of the original movie into a platform? Yeah, um, that was always, I mean, I mean, one way we addressed it, I think, was to do a number of mini-games around the, the platformers. So, Batman the movie, movie, for instance, the main substance of the game was a platform game, but then there'd be other intermediate levels that would give some variety and, and, and obviously lift it. And, of course, the look of the game was very important, so we had to use uh, uh, reference from the movie uh, to try and replicate the look and feel of, of the movie within the game. Uh, we did the same in Robocop, we had some mini-games in that, but <coughs> platformers were tried and tested, although um, personally, uh, I believe the best platformer we made in-house was Adam's Family. Uh, I just thought it was remarkable. Well, speaking of The Simpsons as well, I mean, obviously, that was just shown on Sky at the time, wasn't it? And then, Bart Simpson became like the biggest star in the world, and that again showed quite a lot of foresight on Ocean's behalf. I mean, did you kind of have people keeping an eye on what was going to be the next trend? Were you always looking ahead? Well, it, it, it's funny you mention The Simpsons because I remember I was out in the States the week the first Simpsons show uh, was shown. Uh, it, it, it had been originally a little bit on the Tracy Ullman show, and it was the first week that it, 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 it had its own uh, episode of its own series. And I came back and I said, we've got to get this license. This is going to be huge. The Americans are going mad about it. Uh, we ought to get the license. And no one had heard about it in the UK. So um, there wasn't the attention paid to it. And about a year later, when it started to become, to become truly phenomenal, uh, a claim snapped, that snapped it up already. Uh, so that's what we missed, actually. I remember the first Simpsons at school. We had a, a VHS copy from America and a full assembly of meals and we watched it. <laughs> Comments like that made me feel so old. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of uh, kind of other franchises, you worked on a game based on the Watchmen comics as well. How was that? Um, yeah, I, again, I was, into, I was into comics a lot. And uh, the Watchmen had just started. In fact, it, it hadn't completed the series, and I, I loved it. Um, so I got in touch. We were doing a little bit with DC because of the relationship with Batman. And... Um, I contacted DC, we went up to New York, <coughs> excuse me, and we were looking at a few licenses, including Lobo. Um, and the Watchmen, I asked them if the Watchmen rights were available, and they said yes. So we negotiated those, and then I got in touch with Dave Gibbons, uh, who was the artist on the Watchmen, which he uh, co-created with uh, Alan Moore, excuse me. And um, he came to the, um, to the studios, and that was in the old ones in Central Street. And we gave him his first computer, an Amiga. And he was actually going to do the graphics for the game as well, or help with the graphics. But I don't know what happened to it. Um, for some reason, I think maybe it didn't become mainstream enough. This was obviously before the movie, um, a long time before the movie. Uh, and perhaps it, it didn't become mainstream enough. And uh, although we were a big company, we did have limited resources and we had to cherry-pick what we'd apply those resources to. And so I think, uh, I don't think we ever actually prototyped the game. Well, speaking of comics, I mean, you mentioned you were a comic fan then. Was there any other, like, superheroes or comics that you would have liked to make a game of? I did want to do Lobo. I okay. really wanted to make an adult version of Lobo, um, but I was voted down on that. Although I think we did play around with the idea at Ocean US at one point. Um, but no, it was always very difficult. And, and this was the thing about... You know, you obviously think the big one always was Superman. He was the biggest superhero. But when you think about it, how can you make a game um, to control someone with all those different powers? He's got X-ray vision, heat vision, he can fly, he's got super strength, all the rest of it. Um, and your controls will be all over the place. It will be an incredibly complicated game to, to develop. Um, so we didn't really consider that. Uh, I, I don't remember... I'm sure there were. I think Green Lantern was one we uh, we tried to do as well, but uh, I don't remember any of this. So why did you end up leaving Ocean in the end? Pass. Um, <laughs> uh, I it was being bought by uh, a French company. Um, <laughs> well, there was rumours of it being bought by a French company, and uh, I felt that the culture was going to change a little bit, and I wanted to move on. There was more to it. <laughs> For another day. Yeah, another day. <laughs> so what would you say is kind of Ocean's legacy then? Um, 
it's a great legacy. I mean, you, the, the number of people here are testament to that legacy. Um, I, I think we were there at the beginning. We did a number of things right. I think it was one of the few companies in the business that was operated as a business. Uh, and that contributed greatly to its success. Um, I'd like to think that um, we, we set out a template for the way game, and not just us, but a lot of companies in, in, in those day, days, um, we set out a template for the way games would be developed from there on. Um, you know, there was no such thing as a producer when I started at Ocean. There was, and then they started talking, that came from America, oh, you got a producer. I was a producer. We just got people looking after the games. That's what they had on their business card: person who looks after the games. Um, uh, so, so the titles became very Americanized, but the the actual process, I think, um, is still largely kept to today. You know, you, you schedule things, you design them out, you develop them, really simplifies it. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's an inexact science, uh, and this is the problem. With a movie, with a book, you have a very, very finite template to follow. If you're making a movie, you can have a shooting schedule, and weather permitting, you can pretty much stick to it, and edit it, you allow time for editing, and you'll get end up with a pretty good experience, and you know, time-wise, what that's going to be. With a video game, it's really difficult to explain to people back then because most people didn't play games. Um, and the movie people, you had to explain to them, this was not a linear experience. You were um, creating this infinite form of entertainment which could branch off in any way. And everything had to be tested um, for usability, interface, look, feel. Um, and you wanted to people to get their five pounds worth uh, when they bought their cassette. Um, so it, it, was a, it was a really, really complicated process. And therefore, you needed the people developing the games had to be gamers. They had to understand what they were playing and, and whether they enjoyed the experience themselves. Um, and that has obviously continued to today. And as I say, Ocean were no, uh, weren't the only ones doing that. There was uh, well, Mark Kells over there, the System 3, and, and, and plenty of others, you know, making amazing games. And, and, and all of those companies, I'd like to think, back in those days, formed the template for the way things are done today. Well, uh, talking of today, are you still in the games industry? Yes, uh, for my sins. Um, yes, I, I, um, I, I started a company called Scary Puppies, and uh, I'm just helping out, uh, trying to find new studios who have great talent and a great idea and helping them uh, raise money and uh, find publishers and um, doing a little bit in China as well. I love the business. It, it's been the most incredible business and it's changed a lot. It's very volatile <laughs> and it's very frustrating, um, but I can't think of anything better uh, I'd like to do and I, I do consider myself very lucky. What is it that excites you so much and keeps you passionate <coughs> about the games industry? Um, because it's constantly changing and it's the innovation, because the true innovation is coming from the younger generation. You'll find that, I'm uh, being cynical now, sounding like Simon Butler, um, that the, there's a lot of iteration in the AAA games. It's the very, very similar scenarios because when you're looking at multi-million dollar budgets, they've got to play it safe. Um, so they don't want to take too much of a risk on massive innovation. With exceptions, there are exceptions, but by and large, um, games are, are changing very, very little. But the real changes are coming from the indies, are coming from the, the, the small bedroom programmers, we've reverted back to the 80s in that regard, um, who, who've got no overheads and all they want to do is <coughs> make great games. And there are some truly remarkable ideas coming from there. Okay, well, I think that was a good point to leave it on, Gary. Thank you so much. Thank you.